0: Welcome to Think Queerly. I'm your host, Darren Steele. I'm a personal leadership coach living in Toronto, Canada, and I help people discover how to fully embrace their uniqueness and creative potential so that they can freely create the life they want. I write and podcast regularly about queer leadership and how we can create a more loving and accepting world for all people you can find out more about me at my website, darrensteel.com, where you can also get my book, Think Queerly, Meditations and Critical Reflections on Liberating Humanity. So I'm doing something a little different today. I very spontaneously uh, reached out to a new author on my publication, Think Queerly on Medium. He's published a couple of articles, and the first one started to gather some interesting comments that I decided that I would start responding to. And I say responding to instead of reacting, because I wanted to both learn from how I was going to um, talk through some of these challenging conversations and, and just to see where things would go. So it got me thinking about when the othered, those of us who are the other in society, whether it's the color of our skin, our gender, or sexual identity, how the other disrupts everyone else who's an other and why that becomes so complicated or sometimes contentious or so very uncomfortable. So I invited Sean Banks, who is the author. He's 25 years old and originally from Clinton um, Oh my goodness, Maryland? Yeah, yeah. You know what? That's just ignorance as a Canadian because I don't know all of the states. So I gotta tell, I gotta say hello.
1: (laughs) Hello, everyone. Hi, thank you for having me on, Darren. And and, and honestly, don't even worry about it. Maryland is like one of like the most like insignificant states in the United States. So it's, it's completely fine. Like no one even knows where Clinton in Maryland is. So like you're all good. Yeah.
0: Well, I think if I had to just put O-N and you were interviewing me, you'd be like, where's that? Ontario. (laughs) Anyway, uh, your your bio is that you live in Chicago and uh, you're a men's hairstylist uh, by day and by night. You're a stand-up comedian. You've been performing in D.C., Maryland, Virginia area for about a year. Uh, You consider yourself a perpetual optimist who questions every facet of life and why we behave the way we do, which you display in your sassy yet insightful style of stand-up. So does that encapsulate you pretty well?
1: Yeah, pretty much. I would say that's like pretty much me, like on the dot. Yeah. Like I kind of, uh, I even have that, like a lot of my standup as well. Like I'm a professional optimist, like I'm always questioning things. uh, And so that's, comes out a lot in standup, but also in writing as well. Um, so yeah. And, uh, yeah. So like I'm a comedian. Uh, that's how I guess I got started in performing. Um, and I also did writing as well when I lived in, uh, Maryland as well. And so then that translated over to when I moved to Chicago in March. It was very recent. Um, right as the pandemic hit the Illinois area. It was the exact same day that I moved here. So I've pretty much been stuck inside my apartment for the past three to four months. And uh, yeah, so being stuck inside has uh, detached me from comedy, but has also put me more into my writer's aspects, which has been nice. So it's been been getting a lot of good content out of me, which is very useful when I'm stuck at home.
0: And and what's been primarily the the theme of the content or has it been all over the place?
1: Yeah. Um it's kind of been all over the place. Um so like currently like this is kinda of more of like a passion project of mine. I'm currently working on a short series uh that I wanna like produce and shoot while I'm here in Chicago. Of course, once, you know, all of the pandemic and everything that's going on in the world kind of calms down a little bit i want to be able to like write and shoot that um and so like i'm in the process of writing that so i've been mainly doing a lot of like screenplay writing for that show that i'm working on and then i've also been doing like like short stories here and there and then also my uh blogs on medium that were published and think Queerly. uh so i've been doing some of those and yeah so this has kind of been like a little bit of this and a little bit of that
0: and so sort of in a sense uh covering a large area of topics, but is there something that you're, you're most interested in at the moment?
1: Oh yeah. Like it's always like, I always love um, talking about like, I guess not like mundane, but kind of like everyday topics, but through the queer lens, um, mm-hmm. especially not even through like my queer lens of being like a black queer person, just like the queer lens in general, because I think there's always some kind, there's always something new that you find when you look, through the eyes of someone that has some level of oppression um because like it, it creates more of like a like like a fanciful uh outlook um and so like I find that like my writing has like a lot of um I would say just kind of like a lot of like fanciful words and like a really different point of views because like I have a lot of things to pull from. And I think that like, I've shared that as well with like a lot of my other like queer friends. They also understand that as well. And so I like writing queer stories for queer people because I just, you know, that's what I I really love. And so that's what comes natural to me. Cause like before, when I started writing, like I kind of just tried to just make it super uh, vanilla, very like, like, you know, everyone could get it. Everyone could kind of understand it. But then I remember uh when I was living in D.C. and I was talking to a friend who uh worked at the Washington Post and then they were just like, well, write what comes natural to you and what you want to write about. And I wanted to write about like my experience as a queer person and how I feel about the world through my queer lens. So I just leaned into that. And so that's what I've been kind of going with since then.
0: The word itself is fascinating. I love the word queer. It 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 definitely bothers some people. I like to think of it in the broader sense. I mean, it can be sort of understood within the LGBTQ plus spectrum, and it can also be understood as a different way of simply looking at the world. I've been playing with the word uh, queer, thinking people, and I mean that's the reason for the name of the publication. And I just refined. The description for Think Queerly, which I think might be a nice way to segue into the article um, that Mm -hmm. you published. So, you know, Think Queerly on Medium is a queer thought leadership publication, and it's critical of the status quo. As queer people, we demonstrate our necessary and creative role in society. And I'm glad you are who you are and what you do, because I think so many of us as queer thinking or identified as LGBTQ because of our difference and whatever other inequalities, color of skin, you know, ableism, economic, you know, we will look through that lens of difference that isn't the status quo, that doesn't give us whatever level of privilege to try and find and navigate our way through to creating prediction and response, you know, at the level of the brain, which is forming a level of comfort for us to define an environment in which we feel safe. When we, together in all of this, if we all define as queer, then say or do something (laughs) that someone else within that queer community, quote unquote, feels is problematic, that's when things can really become interesting and some of the last few conversations and things that i've been looking at and and everything that's going on the world right now with you know the the just uh, the unbelievable amount of you know police brutality and racism and you know people who are black who are being killed in the united states it's it's coming to a forefront and it's that and it's more so what was it about a week and a half ago or two months Two weeks ago, um, mm-hmm. I think you reached out to me and you submitted a post um, and I took a look at it and I had a few tiny little comments and I suggested, I think you need to make this little tweak to the title. And I th- I think it was just white people first.
1: Yeah, it was. I, originally, it was like why white people ruined uh, LGBTQ5 yeah. for me. And then you suggested, well, why don't you make it specifically towards white gay men? Because that was primarily mostly what I was talking about. And I was like, I was like, he's right.
0: Yeah. So that that the exact title is Why White Gay Men Have Ruined LGBTQ Plus Pride Month for me. And when I was looking through the article and, you know, again, full disclosure, this is my publication, so I'm the editor. I'm also looking for a clear title and often a subtitle because that's just how someone is going to see an article and look to decide whether they want to read it or not. And I, you know, I read through your piece a couple of times and I thought, this is speaking to this topic and of course I know if we change the title it's potentially going to be contentious but it also really speaks the truth of the article so maybe without me saying too much more yet at this point share with us about what what prompted you to write this maybe a, whether it's some experiences in the article itself or other ones that you want to talk to
1: okay yeah um so yeah i yeah i will first of all i want to thank you for like pushing me to make it more specific in the title because originally when i after i finished writing it that was uh, a thought through my mind uh of like maybe i should make it about white gay men or, or i should put it in the title but then again i did think i was like well i don't want to like deter people away by making it more specific but i think being more specific with it kind of allowed other people to get a grasp of what was going to be, the art, what the article was going to be about. Um, so I'm glad that I was able to do that. And um I think what pushed me to write that article and like share that article and share the story that I talked about in that was because, so I saw that, you know, since everything that's going on uh, with like the black lives matter movement and police brutality and racial injustice, I saw that like, you know, for the first, I would say week or two, that, you know, a lot of people were going strong and were rallying behind it and everything was good. And then as soon as June, you know, it 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 rolled into June and like I would say like a week or two after uh June started, and as we all know June is Pride Month, I saw a lot of gay men, um, just on social media, Facebook, Instagram, all over, kind of just be like, well, it's Pride, Month, So can we just kind of get back to Pride? I understand that everything's going on, um, yeah. but you know, like I, I you know, like I want to enjoy my Pride and stuff like that. And like that kind of bugs me a little bit because you, you can't just turn a blind eye to what's going on. And like also, I mean, a lot of people forget we're still in the midst of a pandemic. So like Pride has been postponed all over the world. So it's not like everything that's going on, the the riots and the protests that are going on in the world are stopping you to go out to a parade because a parade isn't happening. Uh, it may be stopping you from, like, liking a meme on Instagram or something, but it's not stopping you from enjoying pride. And then that that kind of, like, got me into this headspace of, like, looking at my own feed and looking at my, my, what my followers were posting and just kind of seeing, like, People aren't taking this seriously, and it was looking like it was coming from within the the gay community, the queer community, and a lot of the people that I was noticing this, I was noticing this coming from were white, and then that kind of like triggered like a like a cycle of me kind of like thinking back into my own experiences of like dealing with like racism within the gay community, and I was like trying to figure out, I was like, I was like, what can I do to like do my part you know like I, I've signed petitions and I've donated to funds and I'm posting on Instagram and stuff like that but like what can I what else can I do to mm-hmm. like make some kind of an impact or like to open somebody's eyes or to like share something and then I was like well you know a lot of people are talking about Black Lives Matter and they're talking about it from you know like like the heterosexual standpoint and stuff because I see like a lot of like people out there talking about that but no one's really talking about or at least not that I'm saying uh, was talking about the injustice that happens and the racism that happens within the queer community. Because a lot of my straight friends, they see the queer community from the outside as, like, this like this uh, welcoming, super accepting kind of uh, community of people that, like, accepts every single person no matter what. And I'm like, well, that's not always the truth because there's a lot of underlying segregation and racism that happens in the gay community that we're all aware of. And so I was like, well, this could be a perfect opportunity. Um, Because like now, now, I mean, it is kind of unfortunate that it took to this level for people to start paying attention to black voices. but I was like, this is the chance where like, I could, I could use this kind of like elevation to let people know what's actually going on. And so then that kind of Uh, prompted me to write the article and talk about what I was talking about in the article. And um, yeah, when when I, when I wrote it, like I was just completely being honest because I have had multiple experiences uh, with, with white men who have like fetishized me just because I was just because I was black, you know, saying things like BBC or like DL or thug like this. And I don't think I've give off those kind of like traits or something like that. So it let me know that they were just saying this because I was black or, I mean, I read about this in the article. Um, I talked about the, uh, the, like the terms of like, like bear and otter and cub and stuff like that. Um, I had a white friend in college who told me that those labels don't pertain to me. And like, at the time I didn't really, I, I was just like, Oh, okay, well, it must be another reason. But then like, once I sat on it a little bit more, I thought, Oh well, he was saying this because I wasn't white, so technically I I can't say those. I can't use bear or an otter or something like that because those terms were created by a white men in the 1970s San Francisco gay scene who reserved those terms for other white men. And like I did like a lot of research on that too when I was uh, writing the article. And like I I saw that they had like these pageants in like the 70s that went into like the mid 80s. Um, for like Mr. Mr. Baird, nineteen seventy-two or something like that, and like mm-hmm. the pageants, if not, were all white men. Fit white men. They there was maybe one black person or one person of color, maybe every other four years, but they never won. So it mm-hmm. showed that like this has been like a long-standing thing. So my friend was just telling me like you you should fit into the other. You you should go with the other terms that fit more of like your style and your people. And so, um, yeah, I just wanted to write that um, not to uh, like take away from like the Black Lives Matter movement, not to like, you know, make it about me. It was purely just to like share my experience and share what other people, what I know other people are going through, other people of color in the gay community are going through. And then also so that a white gay man could hopefully read it and also just be like, realize me because i think this this is like a perfect time where people are kind of like realizing their privilege and they're realizing that they can't uh just move through the world and not acknowledge it so like now i think mm-hmm. this, this i was hoping to call it out and so that they could be like wow i didn't think about that or i i, I may not be doing it But I know someone that is, or I know people that are, or my friends are doing this. So maybe I can talk to them about it, just purely just to start a conversation, um, which I guess Mm -hmm. was great leading into this podcast.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Trying to focus in on what to talk about. I think the, the, the privilege aspect is interesting because it's a, it, it's probably sitting at the level of, um, you know, the pyramid of uh, along the lines of like bias and then, you know, bias and privilege, which can then lead up into prejudice. And then that'll lead up into actual levels of like racism. Right. So it's like, mm-hmm. um, and, and it's not like it's a linear line or a straight line because there can be a bias and a racism at the same time. But, um, Somebody suggested I read uh, White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack by uh, Peggy McIntosh. And that was first published, I think, in um 82, 1988. And then, I don't know, something I was looking at on Instagram led me to just decide to download the book uh, Me and White Supremacy by Leila F. Side. It's S-A-A-D. I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name properly, but it's it's right. like a 28-day um, workbook. And I just started day one, which is for me as a white, cis, gay male, identifying like where is white privilege in my life? And just sort of to add to some of what you said, like this is a, a wonderful book in that she really helps to describe, you know, that this is actually white supremacy that we're seeing Um, and to look at that word as not something that is just, you know, neo-Nazis that have, it's how this entire system is set up um, that privileges white people or the more white-looking people are versus people who are black, indigenous, or other people of color. And, you know, what, what then happens... All across society, you mentioned your straight friends looking in at the uh, queer community thinking that we're all accepting. Mm -hmm. Well, it looks all rainbows at Pride, right? Yeah. But then who doesn't get included at a festival that big? I mean, as these festivals get huge, there are there are such a myriad of problems like who's paying the bills Um, who's the honored group who's the honored person is something going to go wrong Um, and it becomes very difficult when we are also a community of individuals who have varying degrees of otherness or varying degrees of privilege or um, and it's it's not quite a well, I'm, you know, black, and I'm also low income, and I'm also female. So therefore, all of my layers trump you. It's it's not about that, if you know what I mean, I'm just sort of like making light of it. But mm-hmm. we start to see how all these intersections come into play. And all those this is the challenge of labels for me, like all those different identif- identities, whether the person wants to present them or just be human, everybody else identifies that that person is one, two, three, four of those things, which come with social presumptions that we've just been taught from very early age. Yeah, ingrained in us. Yeah. And then, so when, you know, we were having this behind the scenes conversation before publishing the article, I thought that the title would be very important just to see where this would go. And knowing that, is it every single person? No, of course not. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it has to be said in such a way to, I think, like what we're seeing with the pandemic, what we're seeing uh, with people and like way more white people actually putting their voice behind and freely coming to support Black Lives Matters. We, we need these additional straws that keep breaking the camel's back a little bit further. What would be sort of the most problematic thing that you witness um, that you see in white gay male privilege as a black gay male?
1: Uh, I would say one of the most problematic things I would see, or I guess have seen or experienced, is I think that, and I kind of talked about this a little bit in the article, was that mm-hmm. white gay men, because they're gay and they do face some some level of oppression, they they just assume that like, well, I understand what you're going through, so you like you're telling me this story, I don't need to understand like. I, I get mm-hmm. I get what you're going through. Like it's so it's so hard to be black, but it's like so hard to be gay. One person even told me that they they told me like, oh, it's, it's harder to be gay than it is to be black. Mm-hmm. And they weren't they weren't black. They were white. And I um, took that as like, well, when people see me, they see that I'm black first. And then when I open my mouth, they can tell that I'm gay. So like that's number one so you can't like you can't acknowledge you can't say that race doesn't play a bigger factor than sexuality because when people see me they don't see a gay man they see a black man and then once they get to know me then i'm gay or that they know that i'm gay so i think that's also something again like when people see that someone is white or white or at least that they're white passing they see that they're white so they're already forming this kind of speculation about them so that they can come at them a certain type of way. Whereas someone sees me, they don't know that I'm gay, but they know that I'm black. So they're already forming opinions based off of, um, you know, just ingrained biases that they've had since they were younger. So I I see that, and I've experienced that. And I think that's one thing that, because again, like, the, of course, there are plenty of homophobic people in the world, and there are plenty of people that want to fight against like trans rights and uh, marriage equality and like the equal rights movement and stuff like that. Like I, so I'm not taking away that like gay people have to go through a lot of shit. Um, but you can't discredit and say that like oh it's it's like because again you're you're putting down all of the work from like the civil rights movement and like the fight against Jim Crow and uh, like everything that like people of color have had to go through in slavery. And just, just by saying, Oh, it's just, it's not that hard. Like, I mean, cause if I can be gay, it's like, but you're also white. So there's also a level mm-hmm. of you don't have to experience um, by being <laughs> just, you know, like a white gay man. And so that's what I would say is the most problematic thing.
0: Yeah. And I think it's an important point because we, we, I know I've made this mistake as well, uh, like the gay men, the white gay men you're talking about that I assumed. well, we can compare homophobia with racism. And no, we can't. Homophobia is is primarily a prejudice. And even the word homophobia isn't correct because it would, it, it, the way the word is constructed, like historically, grammatically, it isn't, we should basically be saying prejudice against people who are not like uh, Cis men who are only into the opposite sex or cis women that are only into the opposite sex. Whereas racism is both a prejudice and a power structure based in privilege. So the challenges with racism, it's not, um, it doesn't go both ways. So um, a black person will not get the power that, white privilege that white supremacy offers within the systemic racism of society right mm-hmm. uh and that's a very different thing and the challenge too is as human beings we if we're really not quite aware of who we are, if we haven't done a lot of self-work, if we're not quite sure on a level of self-esteem. And another way of thinking of that is like our self-estimation of our environment and our feeling of safety and our feeling of who we can be freely in the world around us, how we can be authentic. If we don't have that, then we'll focus in on our ego demands. It's like, well, my problem's worse than yours, or my problem's the same as yours. So you know, yeah. oh well, you're gay and you're black. So well, I'm gay. So that's how we get each other, and it isn't yeah, the case. And, like,
1: and that's another thing. It's like I don't like I don't want people to like com- like compare because I see that a lot going on right now too, where like a lot of people are kind of like, well, like like I'm I'm a woman, so like I experience it too, and like and like well, like I'm also this, and like I don't want people to like use their like their oppression as like a as like a like a tool to like fight against each other. It's like no, we have to like this is the time where we have to realize that like, on some level, a lot of people have a, some levels of oppression, so we have to kind of band together and work towards creating a system to where the people that have no oppression, which are like the elite white cisgendered men that essentially are at the top of the totem pole of the country and government and stuff, we need to be able to like, putting all of the, our minds together to fighting towards making everyone equal so we don't have to mm-hmm you know, like where our presents on our back and like use them as if they're like, like, uh, like a badge to her. Like, well, I have this badge and this badge. So what about you? It's like, we shouldn't be trying to mm-hmm. use our oppression against each other. We should try and bring each other together.
0: It's almost like a, um, Oh my God. Uh, it's like Boy Scouts and all their little badges that they've earned. So it's like, I've got four badges of different types of prejudice. Therefore my prejudice is more, you know, and (laughs) that's not to discount the struggle. That's not to discount the validity of the challenges that we all face. You know, um, from the uh, podcast I did, um, uh, a week or so ago, uh, with Olivia Nuama, the former uh, executive director of Pride Toronto and Jeffrey Yovanone, where we were talking about reconfiguring pride i 'd prepared a lot of notes and a lot of thoughts about you know the complexities of all of this and asking questions like, so how do we actually create progressive social change and you know how do we what are the approaches we would need to eventually eliminate systemic racism, gender, sexual prejudice, and patriarchal dominance and the thing is these are all inequalities and and the intersections of all of these biases and prejudices as well as you know systematic uh social norms and laws and attitudes and religion and and ideology it's just, it it's all a demonstration it's never a single issue yeah. and it makes me question you know is there sort of like one really really large issue that if we focused on that one primarily we might see um a diminishment in the other prejudices or further down the biases which are not as like sort of potentially fixed or as as potentially harmful going from prejudice into some sort of like a a violence or some sort of a racism like and i'm beginning to think And probably some people listening to this will be like, well, hell's yes. Why didn't you realize this before? But I'm beginning to think it it is really racism. It is really this, because it's so prevalent across the world, because it's being drawn out, talked about by people like yourself, by the marches, by Black Lives Matters, by, you know, I can't think off the top of my head, some of the, the many really wonderful people on social media that are just putting out incredible thoughtful content that Mm -hmm. are just not um it's it's really this what i'm reading is really challenging people to think deeply because this is not a quick fix this isn't just oh i'll just share a meme this is this do the work For, for me this is doing the work here with you in the hope that other people hear something in this that makes them go oh yeah, I'm, I'm actually kind of guilty of this. I didn't even realize that. Yeah. You know, if, that, if there's that one aha out of this for someone, then I feel I've, I've done, I hope something.
1: Yeah. Like, I think that's what people need to realize. Like, this isn't, this isn't like a fad. This isn't like something that's just going to happen. This this isn't something that's just like, okay, we marched for two weeks. And, you know, I, I, I read up, I read an article saying that like, Los Angeles was going to start defunding the police. So I guess it worked. Like, no, it's like a, just how, just like how racism has been going on for centuries. Like this is gonna be something that is going on, like ongoing, until there is like huge change that is like nationwide, not just in like a few states or a few bills that have passed or like a few uh, decisions by the Supreme Court. It's like it's a long-standing thing, and so I've been seeing a lot of uh, posts on social media about like uh, uh, what is it? It's like people getting like tired of like activism. I forgot what the, the term of it mm-hmm. was. Um, but like people are like, you know, like how do you fight against, um, oh, like, uh, activist fatigue. Yeah. You know, like people are like, like, like they're like, it's, it's hard to, you know, like mm. going when it seems like there's no kind of end goal inside because like, I mean, yeah, I don't even know what we can do. I mean, of course there's like large things that we can do. We can start with the head. A lot of people are saying, okay, well we just got to vote Trump out of office and stuff like that. It's like, again, Voting Trump out of office, again, is something that I would love and needs to happen, (laughs) but it's not going to solve the problem. Yes, he has emboldened a lot of people that are homophobic and racist and and stuff like that to, like, you know, stand strong in it. But, like, just because, just if if he's not the president after November, that doesn't mean they're not going to go away. They might a good. calm down a little bit but they're not going to go away and it's not going to stop happening so again it's going to be something that's going to keep going forward and forward um and i see it as like a as like a as like a marathon almost mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. you know like you know, you're running a 5k and you're going to keep running you may slow down a little bit even you know stop to take some water you know like you know get your mind off of everything a little bit but it's still a marathon and you still got to finish it and you still have to keep going
0: it's a good metaphor, and I can't believe the serendipity. I was having a, a FaceTime with a good friend of mine, Carla, a black woman. Um, we were talking about some of these issues, and she said the exact same thing. She says, I've been working a lot. It feels like I'm running a marathon right now. And I was just thinking, oh. now, your analogy, it's like the starting gun goes, and everybody you know, takes off. Everything that's been happening before, the starting gun of this marathon, has been like the hundreds of years, and there's been... Individual marathons throughout this history, but we're at that point again where there's been all this kind of like preparation in the background. And just like, bam, COVID hit, everything just seemed to come to a point of massive disruption. And to a couple of points that you mentioned, i sort of like overlap a couple of ideas. Um, in one of the comments, I shared a quote that I picked up from another article, which was referencing Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm which is the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. And so what I was talking about with my friend yesterday and what you mentioned here is this uh, activism fatigue. And I, I jokingly said, which I then followed up with, I said, you know, Instagram used to be my place to go just for like fun and silly stuff. And now it's getting so serious, but (laughs) it needs to be. And she said, yes, the fun part of Instagram is also a privilege. And we need that space now for whatever demographic uses that most to also have that space to wake people up. Mm -hmm. And the other expression around, um, Activism Fatigue is empathy avoidance, where there have been times of like, you have to, I have to, any one of us that is working in the way that they're able to best perform to make change, um, you have to take care of yourself. Because when you notice this, when you read the news, when you watch the videos, if if you are going to actually feel from the heart for this, you're going to get empathy overload and you're going to need to take some time off before you can come back into it so that you won't feel so shattered, so that you can recover your strength, so that you can not having to look at it as going back into the fight, but going back into the situation that has been there for a while, but has been so Uncovered mm-hmm. and all these layers have been uncovered, and you know, I like that you mentioned this about pride, and we hear that it's like, oh can't we just have fun and uh, you know the conversation I had on the podcast last week is like, I almost feel grateful that pride is virtual because I don't feel like celebrating this year me neither like it's not it, c- celebrating lgbtq pride is you know that whole acronym is problematic for the people who will not feel included and historically haven't feel it, felt included since, like, the 1950s onwards.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But right now, the focus is Black lives. Right now, the focus is, you know, this this acronym BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. Yeah. And,
1: and like, I'm I'd love like, to hear I'm, your...
0: Sorry. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this being sort of the not the top of the totem pole so to speak cuz we were we were already talking about that but my hope is that if we spend more time talking about these issues all the other kinds of bias and pre- uh uh prejudice will be just that much more um obvious to people
1: yeah and like i like i i agree with you i'm so happy that i can we can use pride month as like a way to just uh step back and like examine ourselves a little bit more because I mean, like even like last year when I was still in DC, like I didn't go to the Pride Fre- Festival and stuff like that because it, it, it just turned into like a bunch of people just getting drunk in the middle of the day and not even knowing why. And it's just like this is not what this is supposed to be about. And so it just kind of just got it just felt more like it was like a random party of people rather than like a true celebration and stuff um and so i and then also jumping back to what you were saying before about like instagram kind of like losing its like fun aspect of it yeah like i when that when everything first started going on like i felt that too but like now i'm kind of um liking kind of going on instagram even more every now and then because it's letting me learn a lot of things that i had no idea about like i mean Mm -hmm. like i knew about juneteenth and i knew what you know like what it it start how it started and you know like emancipation of slavery and stuff like that but there were a lot of other details about it that I had no idea if it weren't for people creating all these different uh like slideshows and instagram memes and stuff talking about everything that had happened and I didn't know about like things like black wall street and all, all these different things that I had no idea about that like now I'm learning because of Instagram. So it's like, I'm kind of now like using Instagram as like a fun way to learn about my history because mm. you know, as like, a, as like a black person, you kind of, you don't really know like what your history is or you don't know, really know what your lineage is and stuff. So mm. like it's kind of good to know like, Oh wow. My people did this. My people did that. That's great to know. And also it's allowing me to, because especially a lot of times in pride, um, we, you know, well, I, I admit I've, been the person to do this as well. We love to be like, well, you know, we should fight for pride because like trans women were the trans people and trans women were the people at Stonewall fighting for our our lives and our justice. And like I just say it, but I don't do and, and I didn't do any work to actually like learn about the lives of transgendered people and what they go through. So now I'm using that as like a, as I like go, I'm using this time, you know, away from like the festivals and the parties and the bars and stuff like that to like learn about the history of pride and learn about what's happening um, and learn about like the lives of like transgender people because, you know, trans women and men, especially of color, are the ones that have the least amount of privilege in society. So like I think it's a, I take, I should take this time instead of just being like, well, instead of just kind of like, at, like, uh, blatantly without any knowledge behind me just talking about oh well trans women fought for our rights instead of and not knowing anything about the lives of trans people and their struggles that they have to face Mm -hmm. I you know decided to you know do more research on that and I've been watching uh, I watched a documentary on Netflix called Disclosure and it talked about um how like Hollywood has portrayed uh trans people in tv shows and film uh for, for like decades now and like it really opened my eyes, and I was like, This is like, 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 the world just treats them so terribly, and it's like, so, and it's like, yeah, it's just a lot, but um, yeah, I uh, you know what, I'm happy to use this time to like educate myself instead mm-hmm. of just kind of like fragrantly just throwing around facts without having any knowledge behind them or having any empathy about them as well.
0: There's um a really great podcast called Making Gay History by, uh, Eric Marcus. And, um, that, you know, for you, for anyone else listening, I mean, he, this goes through archival footage of, um, uh, individuals, you know, back from the fifties, uh, there are one, two, maybe three in which, uh, both, uh, uh, Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, are on, um, you know, just incredibly rare footage that we have. The, actually, have these people's voices um, sharing their experience, you know, and that's part of what I'm doing here with you on the podcast because the stories matter, and mm-hmm. the stories taking the time to share your individual story, your narrative, like uh, I'll. <sighs> Literally, I felt a a transformational shift in myself um, when I finished doing the recording uh, um, like a week and a half ago with Olivia Nuama, the, the former ED at Pride Toronto, because what she shared about her experience as a Black woman um and 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 dealing with Toronto police dealing with black lives matters dealing with you know what the participants of pride would like to have and then just her as a person as a human being as a mother where she lives in Toronto her lived experience you can read it in a book but when you actually have that two-way conversation or with more than two people talking that's that's when so much more comes out, then you get to hear the human mm-hmm. without the label, just the human being and, and that 's something that I hope we can i've said this a few times I think we're we've become so label focused um, that from an ego perspective, when we keep identifying we start creating even more separation and that moves into mind, mind, mind. So my identity is this and your identity is that, well then therefore you don't understand me because you don't have this ident- identity or I have a house and you don't have a house. Stay away. I don't want you to take my house. Yeah. The ego is about possessing whether you identify as having something or being something. And from a, Oh, where did I put my notes here? From a, uh, prejudice perspective when we start changing even our language and we put the person first and the attribute after so i am a person who is white you are a person who is black we are both people who are men right Mm -hmm. then the focus shifts to the person and not the quality instead it becomes a characteristic so darren who is a person who is also This, 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 it takes longer to say, (laughs) but, you know, however, I think we can humanize everything that's going on and we're going to make mistakes. I feel like I've made a lot of mistakes in the past, which I've talked about. Um, There are some of the comments that feel that things that you said in your post were like mistakes or said incorrectly. And that's why I wanted to have you here. It's just to get the bigger picture.
1: Yeah, yeah, I yeah. When I um yeah we don't ooh, when I yeah. But with the comments I um I wasn't I was I was taken aback by them a little bit, and like I understood that like you know having you know putting that out there would probably have some people that didn't necessarily like love it. Um, but you know, I try not to generalize as much as possible. Like, I know the title made it seem, again, it it kind of could have alluded to me generalizing, um, but then the rest of the article was just speaking to my experiences, uh, Mm -hmm. my story, and just my point of view. And I've always found that uh, (laughs) in this time, especially Um, white people don't necessarily like to be called out on their whiteness, per se. You know, I think that, like, a lot of white people during this time, they they want, and a lot of corporations and people want to be like, we we are one of the good ones. We are are good. We stand with Black lives. Like, I've never been racist, et cetera, et cetera. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of where the mindset of the comments, the negative comments that came from the article were from, where they felt Mm -hmm. like, well i don't behave like this so why is he talking about people like me and mm-hmm. i just wanted them to know that like i'm not talking about you i i don't know who you are and i'm i'm sure you're a great person um i don't know you but i'm speaking in general so that like other so that everyone because I mean I, I can't name names I can't say, well, this person in college or like or this person in college ruined my LGbt no I want to speak because this is not just a problem that one person has this is a problem mm-hmm. that like, an entire community has that is pushed on to another uh group of people and so um yeah, that was uh my whole thought process, but yeah there were some negative comments and you know like again, like I'm sure there were again like I'm still learning as well and I'm still trying to like mm-hmm. you figure out the best way to like say things or word things or voice my opinion and stuff. And yeah, like, I mean, I even, like my, I have a boyfriend and he's white as well. And we've had to have multiple conversations about everything. And I remember when the rioting first started, like, you know, we were talking about it and he was telling me that he was like, I just don't understand why people are, are protesting. And I don't understand why people are going to this extent. And that was when that was his first taste of like, because we talked about it and then he came to me and he was like, you know what? I, I'm a white man. I can't tell black people how they should be acting, and I apologize mm-hmm. for doing that because he was just, he he just didn't understand why people were so irate. And I was mm-hmm. again, it's not you know it's not my job as a black person to tell him why we're why people are behaving this way. But I'm just, just doing my best to just educate him and open his eyes. And then he came to the realization on his own and was like, you know what? Like I, it's not my right to say that. So I think we're all learning, and we're just all having these kind of conversations. Just so we can figure out the best plan of action.
0: That's interesting. Um, You know, good on him for having that awareness. And and, you know, the the term "white fragility" comes to mind, and people hate that term. Who are white? (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it it's really it's it's it could be many things. It could be insecurity. It could be resistance, um, and it could also be just putting up a wall. I mean, I'm thinking of my own experience as a gay man. Like I've, I've just had such resistance and defensiveness over the years that is simply because I'm a deep thinker because I see so much injustice. I don't see all of it because I might be blind to, you know, for example, your experience or other individuals experiences that have different injustices that they're dealing with. But for what I could see, you know i've had to work on my own walls in the past or my own you know anger and as i've gotten through it and processed it and not thrown it away but learned how to learned how to manage it and channel it in different ways um it's just helped me realize that the fragility when somebody says "white fragility," then it's it's kind of being a little bit of an attack phrase, right? It's, mm-hmm. but you know, what what's being called out is the privilege, which is a comfort, which is a, a kind of a prediction and response for the brain to know, oh, my world is safe. You know, I don't mm-hmm. have to feel under threat, and fragility is then a great word to express when, like your boyfriend was saying, I don't understand why people are protesting that was fragility in that moment because his prediction and response around a whole experience didn't match with what he understood because he doesn't have your experience as a black man.
1: Yeah. And yeah, I, I think that's just all people need more empathy in this point. Like you may not, you <laughs> do not agree per se, like you may not agree with what's going on. You may not agree with like, and then also I think, in the in the early stages of like the the whole looting aspect, like mm-hmm. I think people just love to point the put the looters with the protesters, and that's a whole another thing. But again, I think it's just having more empathy and understanding that like you 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 just you just can't like you just can't tell other people, you can't speak to other people's experience, and this is the time mm-hmm. where you have to learn and take a step back and like white like using white fragility is not like a an attack term you know it's just again like you even said like it's just like it's just uh shaking the box that you're in so you can get out of it and kind of see what else is going on yeah
0: you know just i made some notes if we got to this point around resistance and if we stick to that word fragility like so for people who are seeing this experience and like, why are these riots happening? Like, why do why is this change all happening right now? And the world we're in right now with COVID nineteen and the pandemic has caused so much disruption that people mm-hmm. are more on edge because there is so much uncertainty, even at the existential level. Uh, just about one's health, or you know, do I need to wear a mask or not? Wear a mask. There are all these individual um, stressors from the smallest to to the greatest. So when we as human beings are, are faced with any kind of resistance to change. Um, That goes back to what I was saying, that the brain uh just doesn't have prediction and response. It doesn't know how to deal with the world around it. And it's another way of saying it, is you just don't understand the situation at hand. You don't have enough information to know how to appropriately respond. So as you said, You can ask a question, you can listen, you can follow some of these great people on Instagram that are sharing these slideshows that are educating about prejudice or racism or privilege. And the stress somebody feels is the not knowing what to do next. But then if you educate the mind and you start to learn, that's what creates the potential for prediction. It's like, oh, I was feeling this way because of this or I didn't know that before now I do now I can actually respond in a different way and the more of us who are in this process of learning how to be better white people <laughs> and how to deal with the systems of oppression and racism the more we actually do and show up then that's the the best process of learning and creating personal transformation and creating like neuro associations in the brain where you start to take action based on what you know and what you're learning. And by taking action, you start to change. And so if we get more involved, if mm-hmm. we start listening to these conversations, if we, when we read an article like what you wrote, and even if you might want to like attack or say, I don't like the way you said this, it can be phrased as a question, meaning, you know, w- I don't want to get into the specifics, you know, but yeah, it takes that. It does take more effort to go. How can I ask this as a question so that I don't feel like I'm being passive aggressive or I don't, or that the person doesn't feel like I'm attacking them. And I think that is the challenge that we have to see change in social media, Mm -hmm. which which has made it really easy just to just say a few words and, and, and think that it's okay to walk away from that.
1: Yeah, and like I'm, I'm even because yes, it is about like about like white people being more better white people acknowledging their privilege and like and using that privilege to help other people, but I think it's also like a good time for like black people as well yeah. not to be afraid to like use their voice and be able to speak up. Cause again, we, again, this is not, again, not our problem. So we're not the ones that should be like educating every single person. But I think it's also time that we just don't be afraid to speak how we truly feel. And I say this, yeah. cause like, I used to be someone who I was like, I, I I've seen this like phrase like a lot of the time, but it's almost like that thing of like, not like being afraid. Cause when there are spaces that are made for you as a black person, you almost feel like you don't want to you don't want to overstep because you're like, oh, I had to work really hard to get here. Let me not overstep. When it's like, right. no, like the table was set for you. You deserve that spot. You work just as hard as anyone else, if not harder, so you deserve to be there. Or there have been situations where like I don't like I may want to like my my white friends or white colleagues have made sorry, made made certain comments or said certain comments. I worked at jobs where like. What my white bosses have like said, like incredibly problematic things, and like me being as a black person, like I, I knew that they that they could interpret it a certain type of way. Like if I raise my tone just a little bit, I could be seen as aggressive, or I could be seen as loud, or something like that, just because like I'm a black man that's raising his voice, and that's not the case. And that and that's also something else that like white people need to see because I'm seeing a lot of like, well, why? Because well, I, I saw this as well. Like, why people were saying, well, why weren't black people saying this before? Well, we, again, we all knew this was something that happened. Like, since systemic racism has something that's been going on. It's been a part of America since America. But again, we don't have the privilege to just outright say it because it will be seen as aggressive. Or, like, if black women were to speak out about injustices, misogyny, and racism, then they would be just categorized as angry black women just being upset and mad at the world. And so I think now is a time where we just forget about what society tells us that we should be able to say or society tells us how we should say it and just feel free to voice our opinions and say how we feel. And if people want to take it a certain type of way, that's not our problem. That's, again, their problem. Mm -hmm. That was
0: perfectly, (laughs) perfectly (laughs) phrased. Thank you. I think this might be a really good place to... To draw to a conclusion, I was thinking, you know, this pandemic has been the great, the great equalizer in so many ways, and that it is the greatest disruption in the 21st century, and that it may have just been the straw that broke the camel's back on a number of things, including um, everything that we're seeing and that we're talking about here today around racism and police brutality against black people. Um, any parting thoughts or, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll ask you, I'll ask you the question that I asked, um, in, in, uh, my last podcast, you know, what would a world look like for you that was completely free of racism? Uh,
1: in a world completely without racism, it would just, I guess not even necessarily what it would look like, but it would, how it would feel would just be able to leave my house. And the last thing that I think about is how are people going to take how I say? Hmm. Because whenever I go to work, whenever I do comedy, whenever I do anything in my life, I always think about how am I, how is it going to be perceived or how is this going to be taken? And I think just having that feeling of like everybody being able to just, you know, speak in a respectful way and not have to worry about how anything could be taken or misconstrued would be, I guess, the way I would like to be able to have it seen. And then I guess, you know, a world without racism would just, would just look not only great, but it would just look like, yeah, it would just look like everyone, Just being able to be themselves and everyone being able to be treated equally. And also I think being like empathy, like everyone's being incredibly empathetic. I think that's because if, if everyone were empathetic of what was going on in everyone's lives, I think that, we wouldn't have as much racism as we had. Cause I think that's what it is. People just aren't aware and they're not, and they don't empathize because they don't know. But I think if people were a lot more open-minded and were able to put themselves in other people's shoes, I think that, you know, people would think a different way and people would act a certain act differently. And uh, we would just be able to feel more comfortable with each other. And
0: yeah. Amazing. Sean, I really appreciate your uh, willingness and uh, quickness with which <laughs> you were able to uh, make time to join me for this conversation today.
1: Of course, I'm literally just sitting at home, uh, you know, just looking at my emails as if I have really any emails coming in. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so I'm thank you for having me. This is great.
0: Well, I hope that things... Um, open up soon enough that you can get back on stage and back into doing your stand up.
1: Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I've also been I've also been enjoying this time in because before, you know, Uh, the pandemic hit in, I was very much like a social butterfly, but I've also been uh, enjoying being like much of a homebody and being able to like write and get into a lot of the things that I put on the back burner while I was doing stand-up and yeah, so yeah, I I mean, you know, there's always like a there's always like a plus in the negative like I'm sure once, you know, everything does open back up and I can't go on stage, I'm gonna you know, miss the shut-in life, but you know just wanna get back to normal (laughs)
0: Well, it'll be a new normal.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but
0: it'll be one that we all have to figure out with. So, again, thank you so much for joining me.
1: wanna thank you for having me. It was fun.